I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Welcome to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interviews are just as dangerous as the scenario I put my victims through. And today I have a special guest, a guy that I respect more than he knows and more than I'll ever let him know, is my former boss while I was at Development Group. He also happens to be an Army guy, and that's going to be confusing for some since I was in the Navy working for an Army guy. But he, uh, he's probably one of the smartest, most educated, well-rounded Army guys I've ever known. And I want to welcome Chris Costa to the show. Thanks for coming, buddy. Hey, Clint. It's an honor and a privilege. I think you're setting me up saying all those nice things before I take a test. <laughs> but I'm ready. Yeah. yeah, right before I start slaughtering officers. Yes. <laughs> all right. and, you know, it truly is a privilege. And uh, thank you for the kind words. It was a privilege to work with you and see you, what the impact that you had on, on national security, quite candidly. Yeah, no, and, and back at you, you know, I'm going through what we can pull off the internet here, and it's pretty amazing. Um, I'll just read it just to embarrass you a little bit. Colonel Costa is the executive director of the International Spy Museum and a 34-year veteran of the Department of Defense. He previously served 25 years in the United States Army working in counterintelligence, human intelligence, and with a special operations soft background and operations in Central America, Europe, and throughout the Middle East. He ran a wide range of intelligence and special operations in Panama, Bosnia, the first and second Iraq wars, and Afghanistan. Costa earned two bronze stars for sensitive human intelligence work in Afghanistan, then later assigned, this is when I met you, uh, to Naval Special Warfare Development Group. He served as the first civilian squadron deputy director. And in 2013, Costa was inducted into the United States Special Operations Commando Hall of Honor for lifetime service to the U.S. Special Operations Command. Most recently, he served as the special assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council. Holy shit. So um, when you add it all up, man, that is quite the career. And uh, I know I'm proud of you. You got to be proud of that, right? No, I'm proud of my career. I was very fortunate, but I would argue that I'm a lifetime earner, earner, not learner, not earner, right? And, <laughs> well, that, yeah, that kind I of I wish I was together. a lifetime earner. And uh, <laughs> during that lifetime of experiences, Clint, you know, I learned from people like you all along the way. And it all culminated with working at the White House, candidly, and uh, seeing operations play out overseas, even knowing operators that participated in, in counterterrorism operations, and uh, knowing that our policy were, in essence, driving those operations. So a lifetime of learning, a lifetime of working with people like you, and I don't want to ever forget to, to call that out. So I am very fortunate. And then I ended up at the Spy Museum 
which like you, we educate the public, right? You educate them on, on deadly skills. You educate them on survival skills. We educate the public and the business that you and I were in. And that, that is uh, an honor to be able to continue to give back. Yeah, no doubt. I, the Spy Museum, especially the new building, has just turned out to be just an incredible place. I mean, uh, I remember the first time walking in there, I think I, I literally was at awe compared to the one on F Street. I mean, just uh, just a big leap forward for the history uh, and, and those artifacts that keep espionage, not just U the U.S. role in it, but globally, how intelligence plays a big role and how um, we stay peaceful for the most part ac around the globe, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. And uh, I will tell you that my favorite thing to do at the Spy Museum, or one of my favorite, is to show people your artifacts and tell them that we work together. And of course, that gives me instant points, right? Instant bona fides <laughs> with the public, because they know your work. So it's a lot of fun to be able to give back, educate the public in different ways, everything from films to showing people your artifacts, telling people your stories, and every once in a while being able to, uh, to, to share some vignette, some non-sensitive vignette from my career. So it's yeah. a lot of fun to be able to tell those stories. And the museum is quite extraordinary, as you said. And we want the public to come visit us. Heck yeah. See, if you're ever in Washington, D.C., you have to go go check out the International Spy Museum. It is one of the most trafficked uh, museums I th in the district, or it used to hold the record, right? That's right. The most yeah. popular museum in D.C. Yeah. Various times. That's awesome. Um, now, let's let's take a step back in time. You, you went, when, when did you come into the Army? I came into the Army and was commissioned in 1984, May 19, 1984. And I can't remember. Are you a West Point guy? No, I went to a private military college called Norwich University, Millage, yeah. Military College of Vermont, and uh, very proud of that pedigree. It was uh, an extraordinary place to learn about leadership, and, uh, and candidly, it, it started me off on the right foot in my formative years, and I think I had an extraordinary education, but most importantly, it was self-governing. So I had an opportunity to learn about leadership and uh, test out ideas, you know, take some knocks along the way because you're at a military school, right? Yeah. So it was an extraordinary education, but that's how I started my career. I was commissioned as second lieutenant in the infantry. So I spent three years in the infantry after going to airborne ranger school in infantry officer basic course. Okay. And then when did you jump into the special forces world? So I always wanted to serve in special operations generically at, at, at but I wanted to do it as an intelligence officer. So I kind of kept my eye on that ball. So I didn't become a I didn't become a special forces officer. I became an intelligence officer. And then I was sent to other agencies, schools to learn the art, the arcane art of human intelligence. And I did that in army special mission units that we don't talk a lot about. And I also served much of my formative years working with SEALs, Rangers and special forces and other special mission units. So I had a chance to ply my art, my skills with special operators. And first and foremost, we did that in 
as you said in my bio in, in Panama, and then the first and second Gulf War. And candidly, we also applied our trade in Bosnia. We don't get a lot of credit for that work. It was quiet work. And it kind of allowed us to refine the art of tracking people, bad actors in a gray zone environment, if you will. So people weren't shooting at us, but the standards for executing sensitive operations were exceedingly high because the standard was if you make a mistake, the operation will get shut down. So that's my formative kind of experience all the way up to 9-11. Yeah, back then in Bosnia, you got that—that that was hunting pifwicks, right? I so I don't talk a lot about who we were hunting. Suffice to say, I will tell you that we refined skills on tracking all kinds of bad actors because there weren't just uh, criminals and people that were wanted by uh, the international criminal criminal tribunal, but there were also mujahideen, right, leftover. Uh, fighters from Afghanistan. There were Iranians operating in the Bosnian space. So we mm. find the ability to conduct reconnaissance and surveillance of all kinds of bad actors. And we refine those, you know, techniques, tactics, procedures, as you know, the tradecraft, um, the stuff you employed. We really refined a lot of that in Bosnia. And that came in handy when 9-11 happened. Because we also, for the first time, arguably, really had worked in a joint environment and in an interagency environment to work with other agencies in Bosnia that we weren't used to doing. Some of that happened in Somalia, but Somalia wasn't a great example. So in Bosnia, we were able to refine a lot of those skills. And that's when I first worked with Navy SEALs. And somewhere along the way, I said, geez, I want to work with these guys again, because it was all kidding aside, an extraordinary humbling experience. Yeah, no doubt, man. That's a, that's a good start too. I'm, I've heard a lot of great stories. And even, you know, when I was in going back to the, the Bosnia area to, I mean, still a great place to even try out new stuff <laughs> against, against criminals that are still uh, roaming at large and uh, almost like a test bed, if you will, for things and tactics you could use in other, uh, in other spaces. Um, yeah. It's amazing how long that has been around that most people don't even know about. Um, Let's talk. Let's get into some sexy stuff. So, two bronze stars for sensitive human intelligence. How's the best way you characterize those awards? So, the really, behind those awards. So, I had the opportunity, really, for the first time in my career, in earnest, to move with SEALs and other special operators into a combat zone and go out and do classic human intelligence operations. I like to call it and characterize it as a rural cocktail party. I went out into the hinterland, protected by SEALs and other special operators, and I went into village after village, and uh, we developed relationships and set up conditions to meet these guys because they were mostly guys, they were tribal leaders that had placement and access to intelligence that we wanted on Al-Qaeda facilitators and uh, other bad actors, Taliban, warlords, warlords who went bad. The bottom line is I had an opportunity to meet these guys throughout the Gardez uh, 
region and the, I think the Zormat Valley, if I'm not making a mistake. And I operated in spaces that were close also to the Pakistani border where bad actors were hiding out. I developed that intelligence and really it, it, was, uh, it was an extraordinary experience. And I was recognized for essentially, it was a team effort certainly, but we, we really breathed new life into a special task force's human capabilities by going out, spotting, assessing, developing and recruiting people to answer our requirements. And when I say our requirements, special operations requirements to get at the targets, as I said, Al-Qaeda, Taliban and other facilitators. So I really was recognized for building those networks or rebuilding those networks as it were. In the second Bronze Star, really I'm proud of this. I, I had stepped away from special operations for a tour to be chief of human intelligence at US Central Command. And in essence, uh, I, I was a recruiting battalion commander. The army said, Chris, you're so good at these sensitive operations. We want you to command a recruiting battalion in Albany. Well, for me, that was not exactly where I wanted to be. That's where the army sent me. So I was champing at the bit after two years to get into the fight. And I got right into Afghanistan, literally after I changed command. I served on a task force, as I said. And then later, when I finally got my assignment, I wanted to be the human officer for all of Central Command, which essentially said I was responsible for all human intelligence by DOD that happened throughout the Middle East and Afghanistan. And in that job, I uh, put my hand up again, much to the disappointment probably of my family, but sure, certainly I had their, their uh, support. I deployed to set up a human capability that was lacking in Afghanistan. And I worked for a Lieutenant General. And while we were there, I hung up a shingle and in essence told everybody in Kabul, we're here to include warlords and a whole bunch of interesting actors that we're here, we're open 24 hours a day, come bring us your intelligence. And I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but what it generated is uh, an amount of human walk-ins. In other words, people that had intelligence and wanted to provide it to the United States. We had to sift through a lot of bad information. We didn't know if we were being set up for ambushes. And we started conducting meetings all over Afghanistan to follow up on these leads. Now I was a staff officer by day, but at night I was leading my team to conduct these meetings, conduct these clandestine operations throughout Afghanistan. And the end state was to provide essentially force protection to U.S. forces, actionable intelligence. And I know we saved lives to include Marines in the Sarobi Valley. We protected civilians when we developed actionable intelligence that rock, a rocket attack was going to take place in Kabul. So we disrupted several operations in a relatively short span of time. And I was, again, uh, flattered to be a part of this team or lead the team, but really be a part of the broader team. And uh, in this case, I had a lot of support from special operations. So those that kind of encapsulates my experiences that were recognized by the Bronze Stars. And again, you know, um, medals are always debatable. What's important is the team, the team that uh, you work with and making sure others get recognition along with you. You know, the deed is all not the glory, as you well know, right? 
one of yeah. our one of our credos. Um, but it was it was an extraordinary experience. And again, it was all learning, Clint. So by the time you and I met in 2009, around 2009, I believe, yeah. um, I had done an awful lot of learning and uh, I had an opportunity to work with the, with the world's best, arguably. Yeah. And then you are now you're in a leadership position and a damn good one at that. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, like the freedom I had to go and just do some really cool stuff was, you know, <laughs> without a doubt due to you, you were the, um, uh, for those of you listening, number one, um, it's very rare to have a civilian, uh, be a deputy commander, uh, especially, it was kind of new to us, not new to all tier one forces, but definitely new to us to have civilians intermixed with active duty. And so after Chris retired, he became, you know, a government civilian, a GS to a certain degree or a contracted, which, which one you kind of started with both or ended with, no, I, I, it was a hybrid type deal, right? No, I was a government service. I was a GS 15, which is that's right. Okay. Pretty high, high and uh, yeah, pretty good benefits. I know there was some other um, hybrid deals going, but I can't keep track of them. But you you came in as a GS, and now you're our, you're really my boss. I mean, most of the fun stuff I got to do was directed and uh, authorized by you. And uh, I think people would find it interesting that most of the stuff that was really cool, you know, wasn't uh, SEAL related, right? It's it was me going off and helping out other agencies that we had relationships with. Um, in, in some form or fashion. And, uh, and then on top of that, having an experienced army guy who had already been there, done that, um, I think allowed the, the squadron to move forward a whole lot faster than it would have if they would just would have put another seal in that spot. Cause you and I both know it's, uh, it can be hit and miss, uh, you know, depending on the level of passion someone may have for the position they're sitting in, you know, really passionate people about their job, get a lot done in a short period of time while others kind of look at it as, uh, you know, they could just sit there for two or three years and wait for their next, uh, assignment. So, um, having you there was, was awesome. And, uh, and having, I think the, the key piece is called trust. And, um, that's what I felt the most was that you trusted me or Jeff to go off and do the right thing. And, I don't even remember you asking many questions other than like, well, how did it go? <laughs> which was, uh, which was always, which was a nice surprise. No doubt about it. Well, you hit the nail on the head by using the word trust. You beat me to it. Fundamentally leadership's about trust. The two way street though. And I know your audience knows this because they've been listening to you. It's about building trust and then empowering your people to execute what it is yeah. they need execute and you did an extraordinary job executing the tasks that you were given overseas i'd like to comment a little bit again to our audience a little bit about the leadership aspect of of seals bringing in an army guy people said you must have had a really tough time <laughs> and i said well i didn't really have to lead them right it was a it was a matter of building a relationship with them and building trust and offering some insight but the key point is Steele's brought in an army guy because they recognized they couldn't do what I do um, based on my experiences. They couldn't necessarily replicate that. And I didn't want to be a Steele. And that's the perfect relationship. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't need to go to a range every day. I didn't need to go out and do as much PT as everybody every day. What I had to do is focus on what, what the SEAL command wanted me to focus on and take all of that learning and share it in a, in a way that's not intrusive. And uh, I didn't know until well after I had left the command that Admiral McRaven was well aware that they just hired a civilian retired army colonel and he knew my background and my reputation. And I didn't know until after I left that that wasn't a contentious issue, but it was a wait and see issue. And yeah. I would have thought I had established bona fides, but at the end of the day, nobody actually knew how that would have gone down by hiring an army guy. And it, it worked out great for me. And I hope that command members and former unit members would agree it worked worked out great for them. It certainly was a phenomenal six years I had. And it set me up, as I said, for success, literally at the White House, answering directly to the president and the national security advisor. All of that learning and the experiences at Danek were a culmination of a whole career. More with former super spy Chris Costa after the break. And for more episodes with badass combat vets, don't forget to browse the Can You Survive This podcast archives on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's kind of move into that. You and I, we worked together, and it was fun, and I got to go do cool stuff, and you let me do it, and hopefully it didn't embarrass you too much. We didn't, but I did make fun of you a lot, though. I think a lot of SEALs had fun with that part, right? So, <laughs> well, again, the art is let them have all the fun they, they want. Just make sure you lead them in the right direction while yeah. they're Yeah, no doubt. So now, okay, so now you go. You went down to SOCOM for a bit, but we'll skip that and head straight into the White House. So... And you were, uh, you were having to work, you're basically advising Trump, right? And just a curiosity question, did, did he listen to you? So he was too removed from me, right? Too, in, in terms of... Uh, Two people. From, a, from an echelon, right? I had to deal with the Homeland Security Advisor and the National Security Advisor. In fact, that was kind of extraordinary that my position had to answer to two bosses. So... I communicated to President Trump through papers and through my bosses. I had perhaps a dozen interactions with them. They were wholly positive. I briefed the president in the immediate aftermath of Charlottesville, and I found him to be very receptive. So I won't talk about my direct interactions with the president. Suffice to say, what I, I do want to convey is they were wholly positive, and they yeah. would they would be what you would expect. And I will tell you that I wasn't dealing with the kind of contentious issues that other National Security Council senior directors were dealing with, although counterterrorism was charged, right? The president politically charged. The president came into the White House on a platform of being tough on terrorists. So my balance was ensuring that we were nothing but professional in making sure my bosses delivered the right messages. I spent a lot of time with the principals, meaning the Secretary of Defense, the Director of the FBI, the Director of the CIA, in their meetings, being a bit of a whisperer because that's what senior directors do. So my job wasn't to roll into the Oval Office 
and brief the president directly. My job was to make sure the Homeland Security Advisor and the National Security Advisor had the tools that they needed to brief him. And as I said, there were perhaps a dozen interactions that I, I've had, which I don't characterize a whole lot, except for the point is they were all positive from my standpoint. Yeah, yeah. I, I Obviously, I was out and uh, didn't, didn't interact with the guy. But, you know, over... 30 plus years you served the government, who would you say was the most aggressive administration you worked for as it relates to, uh, you know, bad guys? Well, you know what? I would say that uh, the Obama administration was particularly aggressive against the Al-Qaeda in the Fatah in executing the uh, Abbottabad raid. And yet George W. Bush was particularly aggressive in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. So here's what I would, here's how I would answer your question, Clint. And it's a really important question. I would argue that each administration uh, built on the previous work. They won't admit it necessarily that we built on positive work done in the CT space by Obama. I will admit that it was mm -hmm. cumulative in the counterterrorism professionals. Uh, there was just simply put a, an arc of continuity that will start really this era of counterterrorism with 9-11 and forward. Each administration was particularly aggressive on terrorism in their own way. Now, it remains to be seen how this administration, the Biden administration, is going to reconcile all that they have to reconcile. I will say they are on a good trajectory for pivoting toward the question of domestic terrorism. And that's on their plate. And I know they're wrestling with it. I know the people who are wrestling with these questions. And like me, they're going to want to deliver the best policy to President Biden. But it's a complex world. So yeah, no I want doubt. to say that each administration has done very well post 9-11 on a counterterrorism front. And, and the American public should be proud of that. And the fact that I was a professional, like it didn't matter to me what administration I was serving. I could serve on a Democratic administration or I could serve in a Republican administration. It didn't matter to me. It was about the best policy that I could deliver the president for the people of the United States. Yeah, I think you, you, your first part of your answer, Obama and his aggressiveness, I think people are surprised by that. I've mentioned it a couple of times that, you know, if you took, uh, well, Obama, if you gave him the option of kill or capture, it was always kill. <laughs> and I think he learned some valuable lessons from the Bush administration that he didn't want detainee, he didn't want Gitmo, and he didn't want torture brought up. So it was just easier to say kill than capture because <laughs> he didn't want to deal with it. And I think if I had followed the Bush administration with all of that drama, I probably would have taken the same stance. And plus, it benefited us as uh, special operations. We're like, I mean, we've been, you know, the tip of the spear for a reason. Because uh, it doesn't matter what the president is. We're always the first choice. We're always happy for the most part. I, I, you know, it didn't matter through my 20 years whether it was uh, a Democrat or Republican. They all leverage us pretty regularly. I think the difference is, is just, you know, which ones um, talk about it more than others at the end of the day. And uh, either way, I felt like, well, you know, I, 
between president to president, I mean, maybe there was some money issues, you know, you know, generally speaking, Democrats like to be conservative with money as it relates to DOD, where Republicans obviously like to spend it. Um, You notice those little differences. But overall, when it came to the operational tempo, you really don't notice a difference, right? That's exactly right. I would just, to put a finer point on it, a distinction between the Trump administration and arguably my predecessors would be some of the, what I would view as impediments within the bureaucracy. We tried very deliberately to remove power down, sort of like the leadership philosophy we talked about. We wanted to power down and to give the appropriate authorities to battlefield commanders. And although there have been some media reporting suggesting you know, that was done willy nilly and we didn't care about uh, civilians being killed on the battlefield. I can tell you earnestly and forthrightly that that's absolutely not the case. Our direct action policies, and there have been disclosures on that, the media has published um, uh, some accounts, as well as the Biden administration has released some of the very policies that I worked on for a whole year relating to direct action. And what we wanted to do is continue being extremely aggressive. I mean, think about what we had to do against the physical caliphate of ISIS, who the audience would know are, you know, are jihadists, are terrorists. We took away their physical space, along with special operations, along with our foreign partners, the Kurds, for example. So um, we had to to also remove some bureaucratic impediments. And I'm very proud to say we did that uh, very, very deliberately. No one's gonna give the administration credit for that. And again, we didn't do it for credit, but suffice Mm -hmm. to say it was effective and you can ask battlefield commanders and special operators and people in the intelligence community will off the record say that the administration gave them the tools that they needed without some of the bureaucracy. But again, overall, the theme is there was an arc of continuity that was extremely positive. And we had learned valuable lessons in the aftermath of 9-11 to the present day. Yeah, no, that's all good, valuable information. And you obviously learned a lot while you were there, especially the politics of DC, right? I'm waiting for you to do a program someday on surviving <laughs> the White House because I have a lot of questions. I'm not sure if that's as cool as what you talk about, but <laughs> I certainly can impart some key lessons. I bet. I bet. Program. I know. I can, I, can, uh, I can hear it in your voice. Um, all right. So now let's get into some fun stuff. So, uh, you know, being a career spy and having done what you've done for as long as you've done it, Lessons learned that apply to the average person, right? So, you know, um, we call it tradecraft for those of you listening. Tradecraft really is just a discreet way of getting getting business done. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of schools out there and training that both Chris and I have had, um, and there's a lot of cool stuff you see in Hollywood that exploits some of that. Um, but if I were to, you know, if I was walking down the street and I thought I had a stalker, you know, Chris, what would you, what would you advise the, some, some cool tricks or tips that you think that might help to determine whether or not I've got a stalker or not? 
So I guess I would run a improvised surveillance detection route, which I've tr been trained to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about uh, looking into windows and stopping and tying my shoe. I'm talking about maybe going into what we would call, you know, uh, an intrusion point, you know, into a store. If the individual who's on the street follows me into a store that has multiple exits and entrances, like in a mall, if mm -hmm. I could do that in an improvised way, and that individual follows me into that location and exits with me at one of those many exits, then that's more than a coincidence. And maybe I'm going to do something again to just determine that I'm in fact being followed. But I would make mental note of it. And eventually I would get to the point where I want to break contact from that individual because I don't know if there's somebody that's going to rob me. So I would use the skills that I've been trained to do to kind of break contact. As I said, going into a building with multiple exits and entrances, a multi-story building with lots of people, once confirming that this individual came to the location, then my adrenaline might start start pumping just a little bit. Why is the individual following me? And then if nothing else, I've honed observation skills. What's the individual wearing? Does he look to be aggressive in any way, shape or form? Does he have anything that can be used as a weapon in his hand? So I would basically be collecting information and doing some confirmation. So that's how I would approach that. Yeah, no, that's all great tips. And I think you're right when you um, you know, if you want to, if you get into an environment, you feel like you're, you've got somebody tailing you in some form or fashion. I used to tell people, it's like increased density, you know, will help increase the odds of losing that person, right? Without them knowing you lost them. Um, cause sometimes would you say giving up that, you know, that they're there, is that a good thing or, or do you want to, you, you don't want them to know that, you know. You're exactly right, Clinton. I was yeah. going to make that point. Two things. One, you want to conduct that surveillance detection, just like in the intelligence business and this stuff you can find in many, many books talking about the principles of surveillance detection. You want to do so without aggravating whoever is following you. You don't yeah. want them to know you're doing a surveillance detection. And that's the art of what we're we don't talk about intelligence officers, the very details of the tricks of the trade in, in, in painful detail, because that gives us a competitive advantage of doing a surveillance detection in applying that tradecraft in such a way that our adversaries don't think that we're doing a surveillance detection route, because if they think you're doing a surveillance detection route, then the gig's up, right. you know who they are. And the other thing, and this is hard for, for anybody to avoid, but try not to establish eye contact because if that person is following you, you establish eye contact, then that can aggravate the individual. I've been a surveillance with FBI and when somebody you're following establishes eye contact, you think they're screwing with you. Like I know who you are and that just makes you a little aggravated and when you're the fbi and you're aggravated then you can change the rules of the game a little bit Similarly, <laughs> yeah. right Say, yeah. so can't somebody that's following you that might be a stalker but then you look at them and you determine 
that they feel now threatened and then how are they going to react so it's best to conduct a surveillance detection without your adversary in this case or potential adversary knowing that you're doing it yeah no those are great points and uh switching gears a little bit with more current events you know um you know you've got these hackers um russian you know whether they're state state sponsored or not hasn't really been uh advertised i mean i'm gonna just assume they're state sponsored um but in in the payments this whole world of you know cryptocurrency so what do you what do you think what do you think the implications are this whole cryptocurrency capability and as it relates to intelligence and global security so i'm not as steeped in cryptocurrency as i am on on cyber intrusions what's happened with solar winds I yeah. think we're going to sort through cryptocurrency and there's going to be ways to disrupt it, track it in the future and certainly understand trends. Um, but it's just a level of sophistication that's increased. The threats continue to morph and evolve. The threats that criminals employ, I mean, the tradecraft that criminals employ evolves over time based on law enforcement. So this is just another adjunct to the adversaries just evolving, right? I am far more concerned with this nexus of, of, of cyber tools that normally used to be in the province of people like me, people like you in the intelligence community. We had tools that were sacrosanct and only a few intelligence services in the world may have had these exquisite cyber tools, just as an example. But what's happened is one, countries like Russia have no problem employing surrogates, proxies, and frankly, using their intelligence services as we believe that when I say we, I'm, I'm, I'm an outside actor now, just as a student of what's happening, um, as somebody that's following it, my understanding is solar winds is um, being employed by the SVR, which is the Russian uh, foreign intelligence wing of their service, which means they are employing really the uh, cream of the you know cream of the uh, cream of the cream, so to speak. The best actors within their intelligence capabilities they're employing to do uh, essentially to get into your house, and they do that by going in through the back door. In the analogy that I use, once they're in in your house, you don't know how long they've been there. And even after you call the cops and the cops come to your house and say, yeah, there's been an intrusion, then they don't even know where these guys are hiding out. So the criminal is still in your home, right? This is what we're talking about with the solar winds intrusion. And it is being perpetrated by intelligence services. And if it's not perpetrated by intelligence services like the GRU, which is the Russian military intelligence service, then it's surrogates and proxies. And, and in some cases, it's criminal hackers as well, taking those tools that I alluded to that only intelligence services had in the past that are now far more available in the dark web and other places to hold companies hostage, right? This is what has happened with, with physical hostages over the years and kidnapping. When people pay ransom, then it begets more kidnapping. So these are the problems the intelligence services, uh, the, the U.S. intelligence community in the West is contending with right now. 
Yeah, that's a tough one, especially that ransomware, that's um, right. because it can shut everything down, you know, and basically paralyze a company until the ransom is paid. Um, and it's uh, it's very profitable as long as these guys keep paying, then they're going to keep doing it. And uh, it's probably going to be a problem for the long haul. And I always tell people, you know, most of the time with cyber security policy, especially these Fortune 500s I work with, you know, you can have the best firewalls, the best fence lines, but it's the human factor that'll fuck you every time. And mainly because someone just clicks on something. It's the easiest way for these guys to get in is because an employee just decides to click. And the whole network is now done. And we've seen it work time and time again, whether it's here or abroad, um, paralyze, you know, parts of the economy, drive prices up temporarily, you know, and, you know, heck, it was just a couple of weeks ago. It was like, you know, people were filling up, you know, 50 or, you know, 50 gallon barrels at the gas station there in uh, Virginia. <laughs> so, right. you know, it's just crazy. Um, but it works. I mean, it's I, I always tell people like Russia, people forget it's 100 million people. It's the population, you know. I think people look at Russia on the map and they see, wow, they're massive. And they're a third of our population. And they've got enough money. What we're seeing is they've got enough money to run very successful covert operations against the United States. Now, do they have enough money to really go toe-to-toe conventionally? Probably not. I mean, they've had issues with, you know, their inflation and everything else over there. But... They've got the money to continue to run these covert campaigns against us and blame it on, you know, um, these, uh, you know, hacking organizations, these Robin Hood ones, whichever one it is, you know. Uh, But I feel like it's still probably Putin going, hey, uh, can you go do this for me? (laughs) Can you go mess with the United States? (laughs) No, I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in your observation, Clint. You're exactly right. I mean, these are surrogate operations. Yeah. It's it's an asymmetry. In other words, Russia does not want to contend with us on the battlefield. So they're employing covert action, their intelligence services, proxies and surrogates. And that's Russia, who's a bit of a spoiler, right? They just want to be disruptive to the United States. And we haven't even talked about China, the main threat, Mm. which has sophisticated capabilities. And third, not too far behind, would be the Iranians who have the will, but maybe not the capabilities. And then we haven't even talked about North Korea. So we are going to be contending in this space for some time. And this is on top of pandemics and and polarization, not just here in the United States, but across the globe. So... Um, yeah, we have a lot to contend with. And I don't yeah. want to dour, but this is the reality that the intelligence community is dealing with. And this is why I think it's extraordinary that you're arming people with some of what they need to know to survive in the future. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's almost overwhelming. You know, it could freak people out when you start listing the uh, our adversaries and then all these outside factors that we tend to get distracted by, like a pandemic. Unfortunately, it's a, glo- it's a global issue, but... It seems like we're the only ones that really go after the solutions and then try to fix it globally uh, while others just take advantage of it. They go, oh, there's a pandemic going on like China and Russia. Let, let's go. This is an opportunity. This is, you know, what, what's the saying for every failure? There's a there, there's an opportunity, right? There's <laughs> something like that. I mean, I feel like those guys are good at taking advantage 
of uh, uncertain times and trying to, uh, you know, disrupt um, and mess with the United States, you know, through and through. No, that's that's exactly yeah. right. Um, now, so some of the guys dug up something about you here. Uh, can you, uh, you tell us about what is this about Topaz, a spy story yeah. from when you were a young officer? So I was a young counterintelligence agent in Bel- Belgium in the early 90s. And peace was breaking out in quotes, right? The wall came down. There I was, young Captain Costa. I was a counterintelligence agent with badge and credentials. My job was to conduct sensitive investigations uh, to identify, essentially, and disrupt espionage operations being directed against NATO. I was uh, Supreme Headquarters, Allied Powers, Europe, which is in shape, known as shape in Mons, Belgium. And I was at the headquarters. In those days, I think we had 16 members of NATO. Each country was responsible for their own counterintelligence. But I was charged with conducting investigations and working with our partners. And uh, at the time, it was fascinating that there was a media disclosure. There were leaks and disclosures. The media kept reporting on codename Topaz. By the way, the Topaz was selected because uh, it was a Hitchcock movie that was about a spy in Cuba during uh, during the the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it was an ode to a Hitchcock spy thriller. So the media kept talking about the penetration of NATO and the nickname they came up with was Topaz. So we, counterintelligence folks, we knew, we knew there was a penetration of NATO. There was a spy there and we were hunting for that spy. And so wasn't NATO headquarters. So wasn't the intelligence services of multiple countries, Germany, Belgium in particular, and the FBI and the French, candidly. And over over time, I would create, uh, obviously, lots of paperwork on investigations, and we would have to share that paperwork, sensitive paper, with the NATO Office of Security. And the woman who I dealt with in that office was a secretary, and it turned out that she was married to Topaz, and Topaz was uncovered as a spy, uh, recruited by the East Germans, as I recall. He penetrated NATO. He existed there for for many years until he was uncovered and arrested. And I had an excellent vantage point to see, you know, treachery first firsthand. First of all, um, Christiane Rupp, who was married uh, to this uh, individual that we call Topaz her husband, the spy, I could deal with her on a day-to-day basis and then later realize that there was a level of betrayal there, not to mention her husband was a serious spy. It was very, very good learning for me as a young counterintelligence officer. Of course, there's a lot more detail that I can't talk about here, the kind of the leads that we followed. I did notice that my Belgian counterparts started speaking Instead of French, they started speaking German, and it was because they were dealing <laughs> with the West German intelligence services, right? Yeah. So these were some, of, in hindsight, these were some of the clues that I didn't know exactly what was happening, even from an investigative standpoint. So, 
you know, espionage and topaz is absolutely a wilderness of mirrors. And as a young captain running around Europe in the aftermath of the wall coming down, it was a lot of fun for me to participate, you know, walking on cobble street, cobblestone streets, going to meetings in foggy towns. I won't say where those meetings were in Europe. That was a lot of fun. That was the, the end of the Cold War, except for the Russians never quit, right? Uh, yeah. They, continue to conduct operations as we've learned. Yeah. Yep. They are not to be trusted for sure. I like that. A, a, a wilderness of mirrors. Right. Yeah. Espionage. That's, I, like uh, that. I wish I could take credit for that. Like everything, uh, Clint, uh, comes from something <laughs> that I read. There's an excellent book that talked about the wilderness of mirrors and, uh, it came from, for what it's worth, James, uh, Jesus Angleton or Jesus Angleton, whatever you prefer, was a counterintelligence officer at CIA. In much of the world he lived in was this wilderness of mirrors where every good asset run by the CIA, he saw a plant from the Soviet Union. So many people have referred to the er era of Angleton as a time of wilderness of mirrors. More generically, that's the business that... Uh, both of us have operated in that mm -hmm. space. Yeah, no doubt about it. now. So what are so let's move over into now. You are director of the Spy Museum, and I, I want people to hear like what what are some of the things they could see if they were to go visit the Spy Museum. What's some of the cool stuff they get to see? So truly, uh, as an ode to you and an appreciation of what we're doing today. I like to show people your artifacts, right? And I like to talk about surreptitious entry and some of the simplicity, the elegant simplicity of the tradecraft tools that you had. So that's a bit of a teaser. I'm not going to go into details. I want your audience to come see what Clint <laughs> Emerson has in our museum, but it's much about surreptitious entry, tracking bad actors, but you have to get into their spaces, right? Yeah. Um, you have to, in some cases, employ disguise techniques in excellent and sound tradecraft. So I think those are some of the tools of espionage. We also have the tools, and we alluded to it by talking about, you know, Russia's long history of covert action that includes assassination. So one of my favorite artifacts is from a mutual friend of ours, uh, H. Keith Melton, who is the biggest collector of intelligence, gadgetry and artifacts on the planet. And he donated yeah. 7,000 artifacts to the International Spy Museum. And one of my favorites is the um, ice axe that actually killed a dissident in 1940 by the name of Trotsky. The audience might remember that uh, in 1940, he was Stalin's number one enemy. Stalin dispatched a team of intelligence officers to kill him, not once, but twice. And uh, two times was a charm. Trotsky was killed with an ice axe. And we have that ice axe in the museum. It still also, has the blood on it, doesn't it? What's that? It still has the blood on it, doesn't it? Does. It does, and the fingerprints are are laden. You can yeah. see them on the blood. That's it's so might cool. be too macabre for some people, uh, but uh, I find it fascinating. And, you know, the skills that you are excellent at uh, uh, remind me of Argo and exfiltration, right? We infiltrate people into countries uh, to conduct operations, but there are occasions and 
uh, I think both of us have been involved with exfiltration planning without any details where we have to get somebody, a good guy or gal out of a country safely. Yeah. And one of the classic stories, you know it well, is from the movie Argo. Ben Affleck uh, played um, Tony Mendez, you know, in, in the movie. We have the artifacts, the real life movie script, the horrible movie, I should add, right? <laughs> that was was yeah. the cover for why why Tony was in Iran to to uh, to get Americans that were held up in the Canadian embassy out of Iran circa 1979. It wasn't until I think around 2000 that George Tenet, the director of the CIA said, hey, we got to tell this story. So Americans, the public are, uh, are privy to really a great story about exfiltration, about tradecraft, about our intelligence services, about our foreign partners, and really indirectly about some of the work that you've done. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was a great movie, and and you know, most people don't know Tony Mendez. I mean, he's a legend at the CIA, master of disguise. Um, I mean, heck, he was he was good at everything that related to like the more uh, the sexier side of tradecraft. He he was good at, you know, back then, uh, fake passports. I mean, he stood up the whole shop that you know built these types of things and um his book is incredible it was one of the one i mean it kind of led me i mean that i read his book when it first came out i don't remember where the hell i was but i was so intrigued by him and his wife um and uh for those listening tony passed away a couple of years ago uh but uh jonna is still uh up and running and she too is a, an expert in disguise and stuff and oh, i'm gonna try and get her on the show um but yeah, that's uh man, good stuff at the Spy Museum. If you have the opportunity, go check it out. Um, it's summertime. There's no reason you shouldn't. Just get up to DC. It's a great city to visit. I don't know about living there, but uh, <laughs> it's a great place. Every American should go to the Capitol and hang out for a week and definitely see the Spy Museum. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. More with the assistant to the president on counterterrorism, Chris Costa, after the break. Wow, man, we could keep going forever and ever, but uh, I think it's time for your uh, your uh, hypothetical survival scenario. Well, I thought we did it already, and I passed. <laughs> oh, no, Chris. Oh, no. We have something very special for you today. Um, so you might want to take notes. There's always uh, information kind of hidden in this. And I know you're a, you're a good what, – what, you're looking for a pen? I mean, I thought you yeah. – pen and I, notebook was like part of you. Come on. Yeah, I know. I'm weak. You, you, I remember at the command you used to use those little pre-printed uh, index cards. Do you remember that? Do you still hey, do I used those index cards at the White House. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Here's a dirty little secret, again, for another show. Uh, deadly skills of a White House staff officer working for the president. An index card might be all that you have when you're briefing POTUS or a principal. You know, and what you write down on that index card, despite all of the prep work, the voluminous uh, studies, the intelligence, it might yeah. come down to a sentence on your index card. And there are times that that's all I had. So that was the tool of the trade. So I am I am armed yeah. with, uh, with my index cards right here now. All right, Chris. So now it is time for your hypothetical survival scenario. Are you ready for this? 
I think I am ready for this. Okay, here we go. So for this survival scenario, uh, you begin at a fancy banquet banquet in D.C. All right? That's nothing new for you, right? Um, there's powerful guests, foreign dignitaries all over the place. People smoozing. I think you're pretty good at schmoozing now, right? Um, subject matter expert in schmoozing. Uh, you've had a couple of drinks, even though that's probably not true, and are ready to go up to your hotel room, which is upstairs in the same building that you're in. Before you can get out of there, a friend of yours will call Jim. Now, Jim is popular in some of our scenarios because where there's a Jim, there's always trouble. All right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and anyone who's been following the show knows Jim means trouble. So, Jim tells you, uh, he's in dire straits, uh, and he, he slips a USB drive to you and says that the drive has information on it that has to be delivered tomorrow or very bad things will happen to Jim's family. Now, Jim is a good friend of yours, okay? And so, of course, you're going to do the right thing. You're going to do right by him. Um, the delivery of this information has to be discreet, and the bad guys are going to be coming for whatever is on this thumb drive. All right. Jim knows if there's anyone that can pull this off, it is super spy Chris Costa. Jim will text you the delivery location first thing in the morning. And because this is Can You Survive, this podcast, you can't say no to Jim. All right. So you take the thumb drive and you go on up to your hotel room. First question. Do you A, go straight to bed and get some get a good night's rest because tomorrow will be a hard day? Or B, hide the USB drive in the landline housing in your hotel room using a small screwdriver to gain access and tuck the thumb drive into the housing? Hmm. All right. <laughs> Took away my first option, would, which might be not accepting the thumb drive. Uh, of course, we're <laughs> in the United States, and so there's a, a less chance of me getting arrested for espionage because of something that untoward that might have been uh, put on the USB despite Jim being a friend of mine. So, uh, you know, if, if I have to go to my hotel room, Securing it, even though uh, I don't have a real good visual for for the description of, uh, you know, the housing unit and the link to the USB. It seems to me not putting it in the in the safe is the right thing to do. Not just hiding it in my socks. So I'm looking for a CD, a concealment device, improvised. And you just offered me an improvised CD. I think that's probably a better option than just going to bed because I'm not comfortable putting the USB somewhere where somebody can get access access to it. So I'm going to go with B. All right, B. Good answer. You should never let your guard down at the end of the day, really. That's the simple thing. It's like if if you have the opportunity to uh, hide it, hide it correctly. And at least that way you can get a good night's rest and you don't have to worry about whatever's on this thumb drive being compromised. Um, uh, So you hide it and uh, you get a good night's rest. 
And this proves wise, because the next morning, someone posing as hotel security uh, makes up some story why you've got to leave your room so that they can do a general inspection. It's, it's standard. It's normal. This is, what, this is what they do from time to time. And of course, you oblige and you leave the hotel room. Um, but because you did a good job hiding the USB, uh, that, uh, that quote-unquote security uh, didn't find anything. Um, so they get they, the, the security leaves, you come back to your room, um, and like clockwork, Jim texts you the address to the cafe. It's approximately 10 blocks away, and the description of a man um, who you're going to uh, meet is also part of that text. So second question. Next, do you, A, get out of there as fast as you can, travel light so you can get this over with as quickly as possible, or B, gather some supplies that may help disguise your, disguise your identity as you proceed on this uh, uh, impromptu mission. Jeez, I don't see any advantage of, uh, of disguising myself because, again, why would I disguise myself? I've got to meet the individual. Um, Although on second hand, then I'm revealing what I look like to the individual when I approach him. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm going to go with the, the travel light rather than wearing a disc. Uh, wait a second. Gosh, this is a tough one. I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking. Yeah, You're thinking way into it, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through branches and sequels here and a couple of moves. <laughs> Maybe maybe I'm overthinking it, which might be uh, your objective. You know what? Actually, I'm going to go with the uh, the travel light option rather than wear a disguise. Oh, man. Okay. So, yeah, the answer is B. You were going down the right path. You talked yourself in and out of it, but uh, gather some supplies, because why not? And to have that ability with you uh, before you proceed is the correct answer. Okay. So you've, you've missed one at this point. Shame on you. All right, but once again, sometimes there are two right answers, and the right answer is the one that I pick, not the one you pick, okay? <laughs> All right, so being prepared is often key for survival. You bring a hat to help conceal your face, and you wear a black T-shirt over a white T-shirt. That way you can throw off any potential surveillance if necessary. You uh, bring your laptop with you in a messenger bag, you also grab an empty cigar, cigar tube, um, you know, because you like cigar tubes, right? Yeah. Yep, because uh, they're good for concealing stuff. Um, and that applies to one of the skills in 100 Deli Skills Book 1, the rectal concealment. But we'll get back to that later. So you exit the hotel and proceed in the direction of the cafe, all right? Uh, there's a crowd gathering on your route that seems to be protesting something. DC, who would have thought? So do you, A, travel on foot through the crowd and follow the route um, in the most densely populated area with people, like leverage the crowd, or B, find an alternate route that has almost no pedestrians, no foot traffic, and choose that route? Well, I'm going to tell you what I would do. I would... I would use the crowd to my advantage. Unless it's completely hostile, I want to get lost among the, you know, the sea of other, other individuals in the crowd. 
and then uh, hopefully when I come out of the crowd, it thins out a little bit so I can detect whether I'm under surveillance or not, because the crowd is a bad place to do surveillance detection. Um, right. Elsewhere and uh, when there's, you know, sparse population, uh, you can certainly see if you're you're being followed. So in this case, I'm probably going to move through the crowd. Oh, good. Good answer. By taking the route that moves to the crowd, you increase your chances of blending in and becoming lost in the crowd to anyone who may be trying to follow you. Uh, so you slide your way through the crowd, keeping your head down. Um, you move several blocks using the crowd, and you're about halfway to your uh, destination. Uh, you turn a corner and you find yourself on a street with no one around you for that split second. Do you A, hustle back to a route with all the pedestrians and uh, continue to try and blend in or B just take this opportunity to ditch the black t-shirt, leaving the white t-shirt on underneath. I'm going to probably go with, uh, hmm. problem is again, I'm going to think out loud. The problem with change, changing your clothes is that's a bit, provocative if somebody sees you doing it right then there's a some kind of uh of, of guilt complex associated with that on the other hand when the crowd thins out that's an advantage to really detect what your status is right but whereas diving right back into the crowd uh, doesn't give you that advantage so summarize the two two so uh, the first one is hustle back a is hustle back to the route with all the pedestrians or B ditch the black t-shirt, leave it on white just to throw off your uh, potential followers. Yeah, because I want to be clean uh, at the meeting site. I'm probably going to go with the t-shirt. Good. B ditch the black t-shirt, leave it on the white. Um, you know, and on that note, you know, you and I have had all that extensive training and, uh, I think it's important, like on a safety security side, um, you know, you know, these, these little tricks, these little tricks doesn't necessarily always apply. Like not everyone's going to walk out the door each day and go, I should carry a disguise with me <laughs> or a change of appearance of some form or fashion. Um, but it is something you could think about, like in those moments when you think you have the stalker, the, the, you know, the crazy guy following you, um, you know, there's other ways of changing appearance uh, that could help you uh, to evade whatever that potential situation is. Um, it could be a change in bags, a change in shoes, a change of any anything that, you know, they lock onto and how they recognize you. A lot of times, you remember like messenger bags, it was like bad, right? right? For a while there, it was like, you're carrying the messenger bag, you go change your clothes, but you still got the messenger bag. That's the thing they key on. Or shoes, like a lot of times yep. shoes don't get changed and they key on shoes and it's like, doesn't matter that you just changed all your clothes, they still see the shoes. Um, right. So, but on the safety security side for the average person, if you're out there and you know, you think someone's behind you and you can dip into a store and maybe even buy something real quick and throw it on a jacket or something to just break up what their eyes are used to seeing, that is the key. You're just taking away uh, the visual that their, that their brain is looking for, um, long enough for you to disappear. Um, okay. 
So yes, you uh, the quick change of disguise continue to help your efforts throw off anyone who might be trying to follow you. Uh, you continue on your route and you make uh, as you make your way to your destination. So next question: Do you a speed walk as quickly as possible uh, to get this over with as soon as possible, or b keep an eye out for any cameras and make sure that you stay out of the view of surveillance? All right, that's the easiest question yet. <laughs> Thanks for the softball. I hope I'm right. It's going to be B because yeah. you're not going to, you're never going to change your gait because then that's alerting behavior to anybody following you. And frankly, whatever pace you are walking, you should continue in that pace. And that right. can be that can be practiced. But you're always looking for what we call hot spots, right? We even have interactives at the spy museum that that uh, reinforce those points. You're always looking for cameras, policemen, somebody that might stop you and ask you questions. So yeah, I would focus on B. Good job, B. Uh, since we don't know exactly, you know, who's following you, it's always a good idea to keep your keep your eyes open for cameras and surveillance or anyone uh, that may be, you know, just checking you out. Um, Keep your head down and use the hat to shield your face. You know, facial recognition these days, it's its difficult to get past it. But if you have something that covers your face, like a masks during a pandemic, <laughs> then facial recognition just doesn't work anymore. Um, so maybe just continue to wear a mask, even though we're getting through this thing. Uh, if you want to increase your privacy. Um, you are uh, now only a couple of blocks away. All right. So you're doing a good job. Uh, you cross the street as you get closer to your destination, but now you kind of got this feeling someone is following you. So do you, A, start glancing behind you um, to see if anyone's coming be- coming up from behind, or B, use the glass on the storefront. Now, you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, which I thought was funny. Use the glass on a storefront and, to see if anyone is behind you. So I'm going to use the glass so I can, I'm going to use the glass for reflection because there's a way to do that artfully. What, what I was saying earlier is what you don't want to stop and tie your shoes or be so obvious, right? Every bad spy movie has somebody looking in the reflection of a, a, a window. There's a way to do it very, very artfully. And uh, that's what I, I would do, because turning around is just a dead giveaway uh, that you're looking to see if somebody's behind you. Right. right. So you want, what I alluded to earlier is you want your route to work for you. And a trained intelligence officer will do a detailed route planning, uh, whereas this might I didn't have a chance to do do a detailed route planning, right, in, in this scenario. I'm going to presume I didn't. So I do have to use available resources. Yeah, no, good answer. Um, yeah, looking around, you know, having your head on a swivel, um, you know, it does work in some cases when we talk about civilians on the street, you know, being alert, knowing what's going on around you, you most definitely want to do that. Um, during those times when you're playing a little bit of chess with potential uh, surveillance folks, then you don't. So there is a time and place for either one. Um, but at the end of the day, do you know when it, as it relates to security and safety, um, you know, do what feels right, uh, especially in these situations where if you feel like you're being followed. Um, okay, so you, uh, you also decide to duck into the same store 
that you are using the reflection. So do you A, duck in behind the shelves uh, of this convenience store in hopes that you're not seen, or B, casually move to the back of the store and keep your head low, uh, go to the counter, maybe buy a, a pack of cigarettes and uh, use that chance to look and see if anyone is outside trying to you know play catch up. Yes, yeah, so that's what we talked about earlier. I'm going to go and use it as a, a point of intrusion, if you will. I'm going deep into the store. I'm going to buy something. So there's a logic for me going into that store. No one goes into a store and pops out unless you're in a tourist town and you're doing that in every single store you pop into. And yeah. even then you develop a pattern. So it's thoughtful. So I would go in to the back of the store and I want to be in a position to want watch anybody coming into that store. Gotcha. Yeah. Again, ducking in and out looks, looks obvious. looks like you're trying to hide. So you want to be discreet, you know, become the gray person, blend in with everything and everyone else around you. Um, so, okay. You continue on your way and you find yourself uh, on a deserted street again. And it's just for a moment. You are almost there. So do you a, run to your destination because you're so close or B use that moment on the empty streets to do another disguise change. So I am certainly not going to run to the objective. So I'm going to go <laughs> yeah. up to another, uh, another disguise change. And again, I'm going to be confident at that point that I am not being followed or, or if I am being followed, then I'm going to have to think through it, but that's, I'll pause there and just say, I'm going to go into another disguise change rather than running to, to, uh, to, to go to the objective. Yeah, you got it. Um, keep anyone following you guessing, right? That's the goal is keep them, keep them guessing or just not able to actually confirm you. Um, and so you choose to do the quick change. Uh, now you can see the cafe ahead of you. And as you walk towards the cafe, do you A, hold the USB in your hand so you can pass it off quickly, or B, keep the USB hidden, light a cigarette, and close the gap between you and the entrance of the cafe? You're going to have to give that one to me again, Clint. <laughs> All right, A. So I think I'm buying some time to think. Yeah, here. it's okay, it's okay. Um so you can see the cafe ahead of you. You're walking towards it. Do you want to hold that USB in your hand so you can pass it off quickly as soon as you get inside? Or do you want to keep the USB hidden, light a cigarette as you close the gap between you and the entrance of the cafe? Geez, this is a tough one as I think through it. Maybe I'm overthinking it. But if I have it in my hand uh, in such a way that it's... Uh, you know, it's concealed. It, it allows me to also pass it off discreetly, maybe with a handshake to do sort of a brief encounter, which everyone's seen in the movies. So I'm not going to stop and uh, I don't think at this point and light a cigarette, I, but I'm not so sure. My confidence level isn't that high on this one. <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah, the brief encounters and those things were not thought about when writing the scenario. You know, gotcha. we kept it far more, uh, you know, uh, adventurous. So, um, you B, you know, you keep it hidden to the very last moment, and you light a cigarette just so that it helps obscure your face as you approach, because you got your hands up to your face, okay, uh, which allows you to just get into the doorway, and now 
you you're still remaining discreet all the way up to the door uh, now you're inside the cafe and you sit next to the target who needs the info on the USB that you have brought it for okay so last question do you a drop the USB on his table and get the fuck out of there <laughs> or B open your laptop okay open up a text edit file or a word document on your computer and type a message that you will leave the USB in between the seat cushions when you leave. Obviously your screen is in view of, uh, of the person. Geez, I, I really like the, uh, the latter uh, tradecraft of the, the laptop and uh, give you some deniability, some space to get out of there. And you're really communicating to him, that's all. Rather than telling him you're doing it using using a file. I, I like that. I like the tradecraft. It makes sense. He can pull it out of the, the seat cushion when you leave. Plopping it on the table just makes you more vulnerable at the moment. Yeah, no, great answer. It's a, yeah, I think, um, you know, anytime you, you're going to, you're trying to reduce the interaction but still have an interaction. Yeah. You know, I think that's really, it's like chess. That's what, that's what all this is. Um, so, and creativity and you did a great job. Um, now, you know, one final tip for the audience, passing information discreetly, you could use also an image, an image file of some sort. And, you know, and you can hide text in them these days, man, there are so many little apps that do this for you. Um, it's it's insane how uh, the the easy simple ways you can just pass information discreetly these days. It's almost scary, um, but anyway, it makes it harder for uh, th- you know those third parties who may be watching uh, to get any information or know what's going on. Um, but hey, good job, Chris. You have survived this podcast, and uh, I want to say thank you so much for coming on board um, and. Uh, talking to me today and let's take a moment real quick and you know plug all the things you have going on at the spy museum where people can find you learn more about you and uh in in the podcast that you have going on yeah thanks Clint. first of all i want to plug what you and your team do because really we're in the same business you do an, an entertaining job of educating the public on things to think about that are really really practical in what we do at the spy museum as you well know is educate the public on the shadowy world of espionage which is otherwise is not really available to the public and we do that by getting the public to come visit me and us at the international spy museum but also to tune in to our spy cast or our podcast we have a historian dr andrew hammond that does some really really powerful interviews and uh It's exciting for me to watch Andrew being the new historian doing these podcasts. Anything from an author like you, Clint, to real intelligence practitioners, to foreign intelligence officers. And I'm transitioning now to a program that I do that I'm really, really enjoying that I do encourage your your listeners to please tune in. Once a month, we do spy chat. It's online. It's free to the public. All you have to do is register. Uh, In fact, Thursday at 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, I'm going to be sitting down with the former National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, Ambassador Honorable Robert O'Brien, 
uh, we will talk about current events. So this isn't just telling stories. In this particular case, it's talking about what's happening in the media, what just happened between uh, in Gaza between Hamas and Israel, what's happening regarding the intelligence com community, looking closer at the coronavirus, all of the current event stories will kind of unwind both he and I. So it's an opportunity also for the public to ask Robert O'Brien what he thinks about a, a subject of national security. We do that once a month. So that's an example of some of our programs. Uh, also, uh, you can go to the International Spy Museum in DC website and you'll see all of the programs we do to include youth programs as well as adult programs. But most importantly, really, it's an opportunity for us to educate the public. We have the same mission, Clint. It's a, been a privilege uh, to be on your program and to see you uh, in your post-warrior world. Uh, <laughs> and as a uh, educator now, it's fun for me to watch. And it's a great it's a great opportunity for me today. So thanks for having me. And I'm glad I passed. Right yeah. <laughs> no, I knew you'd pass. The thing was, the scenario is written at a uh, very simple level. You are obviously um, beyond simple when it comes to uh, your art. Um, but yeah, you did a great job. Thanks again. And uh, for all you listeners out there, like I always say, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. And until next time, we'll see you later. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson.